0: Well, hey everyone, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I'm Natalie Litovsky,
1: and I'm Arnold T. Blumberg.
0: And uh, it's a pretty hairy episode we got
1: in front of us. We are continuing our run of werewolf movies because once we watched some werewolves for uh, what was it? The last no, the one before that. I
0: don't know. (laughs) We watched Werewolf by Night.
1: Paired it with Beast Must Die, and then we did the Halloween episode. That we did, yes. But. We couldn't get the werewolves out of our heads, so we thought, oh, more werewolves. And actually, for a very long time, the main one for this episode was one of the ones from my childhood that I've been wanting to revisit for years and hadn't seen in a very long time. So we're watching The Howling from 1981, one of the definitive werewolf movies of the 80s, and indeed considered one of the best werewolf movies ever by most people. And then we decided to pair it with another werewolf movie and we're thinking of something a different era and a little bit different angle. And this was also one that I think we both have seen.
0: At some point, yeah.
1: And you, Okay, so in keeping with how we usually do this, like you hadn't seen The Howling. Correct. This is one of my movies from the past, but we'd both seen Ginger Snaps independently at other times. Mm -hmm. And I think both, we'd already both liked it quite a bit but it also been a long time so we watched it together for this one so this time around two more werewolf films with very different takes on it although as we'll talk about i think we found there are some interesting thematic connections and frankly when you focus on one of the main monster characters i think there's sort of received wisdom which is not entirely wrong in this case that some of these characters tend to often be used as metaphors for mm. certain things so like for instance you know the easiest one and I spent an entire part of a career dealing with is like zombies and if you really want to get incredibly simplistic it's basically just an embodiment of death and like the certainty of death but then you move into other things and vampires are often equated with sexuality and sometimes with disease and you know there are other things sometimes
0: uh, uncomfortably with both
1: yeah yeah And then with werewolves, there is also often a sexual component to it, but usually more so from the point of view of a sexual awakening, and an awakening of identity or a struggle with identity, because this is a creature that very often is you're a person and then you're the other self, you know. It's
0: transformative.
1: Yeah, and so there are a lot of possibilities with werewolves, including another very arguably simplistic thing to start with which is that idea that like within all of us is the more primitive being and like what if you act on your primal impulses that kind of thing
0: insert your favorite there are two wolves inside of you <laughs> meme here in this moment
1: right we'll kick off with the howling fire that's burning out of control up the coast tonight firefighters have discovered the blaze seems to have started at the colony an experimental living community founded by author and behavior expert Dr. George West. She's ready.
0: How's oh, she look? She look all right, to you?
1: Is a Joe Dante movie at a time where Joe Dante was kind of firing on all cylinders and doing a lot of stuff in the '80s that a lot of us of a certain age probably remember very well. Whether it was collaborating on *Twilight Zone* the movie, which I also recently revisited, or working on *Gremlins*. *The Howling* was a project that is very interesting too because it came along with another film that arguably is even more respected and more beloved but i very strongly resist revisiting because it's just too depressing and that's american werewolf in london but it's it's just that it's so sad and i i I, mean this one kind of is too yeah this one's very sad but there's also kind of I would argue like at least a weird, well, they both have kind of a wink and a nod kind of aspect bit. to it. Yeah. But I thought, well, American Werewolf in London, I, I find I can't revisit very well. So we're going to. Well, that's it.
0: fine. We'll just revisit an American Werewolf in Paris. I'm sure you'll like that just as oh much. Oh my
1: God. <laughs> I don't think I've ever actually sat through that thing.
0: You really that's, don't need to. It's Julie right?
1: Delpy, right? I think it's Julie Delpy in that. Oh, before we get started, I wanted to put in a little commercial. We're exploring all kinds of new uh, venues lately, new frontiers with the meltdown of Twitter. I thought I'd just put out for anybody who might be listening to this, who might also be either signing up for or considering signing up for something different, is that both of us are on the new, as we record this currently in beta, social media platform Post. News, and actually enjoying quite a bit of the early days of this and it's a possibility this could be something maybe not but it would be interesting but one of the things we certainly are looking forward to is the possibility of talking to more people that are like-minded and share an interest in horror and movies and so if you're of a mind to do that and you're interested in exploring another social media platform we highly recommend signing up for Post.news. We're not getting anything for this, by the way. Um, <laughs> no, I mean,
0: this is just a, an endorsement based on our own trial and error of, of various places. And we seem to be having the most genuine conversation there. Um, just conversation that feels nice and human <laughs> in, in a way that it hasn't necessarily in other places for a long time.
1: And to connect everything weirdly to today, I just today uh, had an interaction with somebody on there who was telling me about a Vincent Price film noir I'd never heard of before that I now have to see, his kind of woman. In the process of that, both discovered that we're William Castle fans, and then he mentioned Matinee, the movie that was done by Joe Dante as a love letter of the William Castle era. And I said, oh yes, I remember Matinee. It's one of those movies that doesn't come up as often as it should and is often lost in the shuffle. For many years, you couldn't find it anywhere. It was one of those, kind of fell off the radar. And here we are talking about Dante on this. So it was uh, it was nice. And the other thing I wanted to mention is, in trying to find other things to do and to communicate out there and connect with other people, I am trying to focus a lot of my online movie commentary and written uh, commentary about film on Letterboxd.com which is letterboxed but without an E. So it's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D, if you haven't heard of it. And I, I really quickly have fallen in love with this site because it's just a great way to keep track of all the movies you've seen. You can check movies off, but you can also review and rate. And I've been slowly porting over a lot of the reviews I've offered for free online and many other places and trying to consolidate them in one spot. So if you're on Letterboxed, or if you're interested in Letterboxd, check it out, and by all means, seek me out on there and um i am doctor of the dead again on post but i'm just arnold t blumberg on Letterboxed, and uh and
0: i'm just mb latofsky on post as well
1: so those are a couple things i'd like to see some more people turn up on anyway uh back to the werewolves (laughs) the howling is one of the movies i grew up with it's 1981 we've talked about this already many times on these shows This is in that sweet spot era of roughly 1979 to 81, where virtually anything that came out there and came on cable was something I was going to see over and over and over again. And we've already also talked about how many of us have had the experience, especially of a certain age, of having seen a lot of things at an age where you look back and suddenly realize, well, that was an odd thing to see when I was eight or nine or 10 years old. And this is certainly one of them, and it really hit me hard this time how weird it is that I saw The Howling a lot when I was a kid. And it is a very dark, sexually dark film with implication of rape and basically the entire film and Dee Wallace's entire character being a metaphor for rape and violation. And starting off in the porn shop, and it's like, and I'm sitting there when I'm 10 years old, thinking this movie's awesome, and it's like this is this is some dark stuff in this movie.
0: I do think maybe just because 10 year old you was so into like reading all of the effects books and magazines and things about how things were done, that it's likely that you probably were really keyed in or fixated on all the transformation effects in the movie when you were watching it because. They still hold up like it, it for a first time viewer. For me, I was impressed at how long they held shots on transformation.
1: And as we've talked about before, and as I read, I read you the oral history of the Howling too. Mm-hmm. We we found a, a nice little article from a few years ago, or maybe it was just recently for the anniversary. They did what we often damn other movies for if it doesn't have other stuff to support. Right. The the effort, which is that there is an effects real kind of approach to this movie.
0: And they earned it.
1: Which they earned, right. In this case, it's fine. But there's like that one scene where Picardo's turning and we just stay on him the whole time. And they're going to run every bladder effect, you know, through the camera. And it's Rob Bottin's effects from the thing and everything else that's like, like genre-defining. And, it's, and like the story, we're not going to bother like we often do. We're not going to delve into all the behind the scenes stuff. Like if you know it, you know it. And if you want to know it, you could seek it out. Like yeah. this would have been Rick Baker, but he was already promised to American Werewolf. Rob Bottin shows up, you know, two people making their names at the same time and, and with the same creature and with very different approaches. Although, to be honest, if you really asked me, I would always say I think the howling werewolves are more impressive I, I always agree with that argument that the American werewolf transformation is powerful because it happens in light in a living room, like happening in a normal place. And that seems creepy. Mm. Like, But the howling, which is done in shadow and like low light, I think is so much more frightening. And I think the claustrophobic part of being in that little room as the thing is taking place always really creep me out like where can you go from the big tall werewolf guy, which is also big bad wolf Red Riding Hood kind of stuff going on. But we should step back. So the Howling is based on a book by Gary Brandner. They changed it a bit. But it's also very much a product of its time because in this movie the idea was to pay homage to the past and there are direct clips from the Wolfman in it. So it goes back to that. Another thing During Halloween time, we we talked about stuff we were doing in Halloween, and we revisited Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, which is one of my favorites. So there's like a little nod to all the old days in this. But it was also the idea of very much reinventing the werewolf for the modern era. Modern, 1981 modern, which meant est and, uh, you know, cult stuff and getting in touch with yourself and, you know, going to a retreat. And the idea is there's a werewolf community who have sort of rallied around a guy who's a werewolf, but also a doctor who claims that there's a way to control it and integrate into society, played by longtime British character actor and star of the Avengers, not that Avengers, but the other Avengers, Patrick McNee. And turns out, as we find out, there is a tension in this community with those who would like to return to the quote-unquote old ways and the people who would like to integrate. And John Carradine, another one of our stalwarts, shows up as an an old guy who probably, if he could, would still be happy to be tearing humans apart, but he doesn't he doesn't have the energy anymore.
0: It's interesting to me too, because it's sort of not just of werewolf movies, but a subgenre of horror and sci fi movies in general, is the type of plot that has the two groups of the same type. One saying, why should we change? You know, we're the ones who are more powerful. You get like the vampire Lestat kind of characters, right? who right? are like, why should I be skulking around? Like vampires should just be right. out there living their lives. And you get the people who are like, well, you know, we can blend in and we can integrate and we can be a part of society. And it's always a very interesting type of story. To me, because it's very easy to sort of port that out of the horror and just into the world and like the constant struggle that there is between modernization and tradition and the way that people want to sort of pick it apart to say maybe not every advancement is an improvement. You know, we talked a lot recently about these sort of AI generated images where you say, well, it's an advancement, it's a computer technology, but it's also kind of terrifying to both of us and also runs the risk of putting artists out of business and taking their livelihood and also doesn't exist without stealing from other art in order to teach the AI how to make it. And so it's just this very interesting interplay and struggle between Is modern necessarily good? Is it progress just because it's new or it's high tech or whatever it might be? And there is a very like late 70s, early 80s feel to the way they do that here with the sort of self-actualization retreat in the woods, one with nature kind of stuff.
1: And key to the plot and the structure of this movie and as Dante has talked about in countless places, was the idea that as a way in to this old school idea of werewolves, his approach and the movie studios approach was let's start the movie like a slasher or really kind of more, even even more so like a giallo. Oh, it's
0: very giallo. Yeah.
1: With the idea that those are the movies that were popular at the time and werewolves were old hat. And the idea was, well, let's start the movie as a giallo as a slasher and then suddenly reveal, oh, there's something more going on, which is why the beginning of the movie in particular is incredibly seedy and is based around Dee Wallace's character as a reporter who's evidently been following the exploits of this serial killer, Eddie Quist, who has been communicating with her. And when she goes to meet him in this porn shop in the opening sequence, which we also get a glimpse of like some of the kind of incredibly violent porn movies that are running in the booth that he wants her to watch while he's talking to her. The whole sequence is claustrophobic. It's uncomfortable. It's disturbing. And it's that incident and what she thinks she may or may not have seen that leads her to need help, which Patrick Mcnee's character is only too happy to provide because of course he's a good guy, right? He's a doctor. who's going to help her sort out her issues. And she's joined by real life husband, Christopher Stone, who plays her husband in the movie who then winds up being quite literally and figuratively seduced into the werewolf community by one of the main werewolves who's very dedicated to the idea that she is an animal and likes it that way and then we have a couple sort of do-gooders on the side who are trying to find out what's going on on the outside and slowly piecing it all together that you know this is this is werewolves we're talking about and Dick Miller has a great scene too i mean like and and also this is you know robert picardo as eddie and for an entire generation of people who grew up with him as the doctor on voyager it might be kind of jarring if you've never seen the howling to see him as eddie quist but for me it actually i think i think i didn't quite connect it for years until i realized oh yeah that's eddie it's an amazing cast of old school character actors and who was new at the time and i have to say right off the bat slim pickens too i have to say right off the bat the thing that really hit me this time having not seen this movie in probably 15 20 years maybe Mm -hmm. is i always liked it but i don't think until i'm an adult i really appreciated d wallace's performance in this is really impressive but uncomfortable Yes. I mean, and the thing is, I did read some more. Like, I, like, we don't normally, like, necessarily, like I said, delve into too much of the behind the scenes. But I think it's important to bring up the fact she evidently, at least at that point in her career, it was a real... She didn't say the word, but it, she was evidently a real method type of actress. And she really apparently, like, put herself in that place. And she's basically playing a rape survivor, even though in the movie she's never physically, like assaulted in that way the experiences she has in this clearly have the same impact
0: there's certainly an element of sexual trauma
1: yeah to it and boy her scenes where she's just like being told to sort of relive the moment and literally like shrieking and hysterical hysterical you know she's it it looks real it feels real and it also feels very uncomfortable to watch and it's like having gotten a greater understanding of what's playing out in the movie it, it's. I still think it's impressive, but it does make it more uncomfortable. But it's also an amazing performance, even more so. I'm fascinated by the fact that they apparently had a healthy marriage, but they're playing a, uh, a couple that are not getting along well at all. And he's actually very abusive to her verbally and emotionally and eventually physically. And I honestly can't figure out how the two of them did that. How they were able to do that. Well,
0: to be honest, I feel like maybe it's it's easier to be that vulnerable on film with someone who you trust implicitly.
1: I guess. That, yeah.
0: you know, she knows that whatever is going to happen on camera is not going to go over the line or over the edge because this is somebody who she trusts. And in a sense, it sort of allows them to make it feel more real in an uncomfortable way. And for me, what really struck me, even from like near the beginning of this, is how willing the movie was to take her side. Because especially in the 80s, and especially for something that started out just feeling like such a slimy Giallo film i was not anticipating that it was going to be told through her perspective Mm -hmm. but i feel like it really was that we're experiencing the trauma with her when it happens we're then seeing her at home having nightmares not being able to function being sort of terrified at physical contact with her own husband and then feeling like she has to apologize for being that way or feeling that way and being told she needs to sort of like just get back on the horse and suck it up and get back in front of the camera we need you on camera and then seeing the perspective of the producers at the station, yeah, who are just so cold and heartless and unfeeling and angry at her when they put her back on set and want her to talk about it and she just freezes in front of the camera, which is totally normal because this is just what, a day, two days, whatever it is. It's within the week that it
1: happened. Yeah, they expect her to just compartmentalize it and go, All
0: right, right back to you work. We're
1: nearly murdered. And-, and they're
0: just ready to replace her immediately because of it like well she's no good to us now just bring us another woman and we'll put her on the Mm. news staff right right? like they just have to they'll, they'll swap out one female voice for another one who can handle it and it's like the whole thing is is her experience and when it's not her experience it really is primarily the experience of other women as well including like her friend from the television studio who's the one who starts researching all of this who's played by
1: belinda belaski also great in this
0: yeah i mean she's the one who's on the case she's like sleuthing it out she's the one who goes out to the retreat and... she
1: has what i think is one of the saddest and most uncomfortable deaths i've ever watched in a movie that i remember from childhood mm-hmm. that scene always <laughs> was very depressing but what's interesting but she's very to, good in it
0: yeah what's interesting to me is that There's also the perspective that you mentioned, which is sort of the counterpoint to our let's all just actualize ourselves doctor is the other de facto leader of this werewolf sect who is a woman and who is someone and like werewolf stories are traditionally so masculine. It's almost always men who are transforming. It's like, pretty much across the board when i think about like women being portrayed as werewolves i mean maybe we could look it up or somebody tell me of something but i can't think of it as happening in classic film
1: there's an old one from the classic era 1946 she wolf of london And if I remember correctly, the entire thing winds up resolving as being entirely psychological, which is what they wanted to do with the Wolfman originally. Mm. No actual werewolf. But it's also interesting that that's the movie that later was not quite remade, but reinvented into a short-lived TV series that our ATV publishing uh, biography subject, Mick Garris, wound up being a part of. There was a series version of She-Wolf of Mm. London that really did do. the werewolf werewolf. you know but yeah it's like i'm sure there's some other early examples that's the first one that occurs to me but then she isn't really a werewolf if i remember right in that one yeah correct me if i'm wrong folks but i think that one
0: it just it feels like something that it fits it fits so well and i think we'll get into that a little bit more with ginger snaps about i have no idea
1: yeah how well these these it works
0: but um in any case Are two female protagonists here, in a sense, neither of them are wrong because you have a woman who's been through an extreme trauma and is just trying to heal and reconnect with her humanity. And then you have another woman who is already at that actualized point who knows who she is and who she is is a werewolf and she's totally fine with that and doesn't feel like she should have to apologize or adapt or adjust and she's not entirely
1: wrong either i mean we only see her as a villain because we're human
0: yeah i mean it's a situation where it's like
1: never that's a beautifully put thing too it's basically the two of them are the different the two different like power nodes in this yeah yeah
0: and Neither is wrong. It's just ultimately as a viewer, we kind of have to be on the side of someone as in order to progress the plot. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately being humans, I would assume most of us um, shout out, if you're a werewolf and you identify with the werewolf portion of this, no judgment, it's just we're human. And so the idea is that we kind of are rooting for our human protagonist in this and we've been through a trauma with her and so we want her to heal and we want her to sort of come to terms with all of this and to realize that there's all this gaslighting going on and telling her just how she's imagining things and she just needs to you know relax a little and and settle in and i get it like you got to pick someone but ultimately who is the one who is going to continue living a fulfilled and
1: actualized life well when you watch all the way to the end it would appear that that it's actually uh what was her name uh marcia yeah yeah marcia hey ernie put a pepper steak on for me will you and a hamburger for the lady how do you want that? how you want it honey rare I always found, like, one of my favorite endings of a movie at the time, too, it was still weird at the time to see a movie that gave you, like, the little punch at the end kind of credits, and I loved watching the hamburger being destroyed through the credits at the end. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, they do give you the post-credits, because we go back to the Wolfman at the end, right Mm -hmm. at at the end. It was really unusual at the time to do that. Airplane had a post-credit sequence.
0: It does have something for everyone. If you... Are horrified by food getting murdered. Oh my god! <laughs> then stay tuned Who through is the credits that because you will see a hamburger get massacred. She asked on a for flat a rare. Top.
1: I've been dealing with this for forty years. <laughs> she asked for that hamburger rare, and it's just ruined. She's gonna have to tear somebody's throat out, which she will. Probably the cook. I also would point out that like a lot of the character of D. Wallace's Karen, the uh, <laughs> Karen. Karen has a whole different meaning now. I mean, in this case, at least, this is a good Karen. the The whole like trauma she's going through, I think, is really enhanced, in particular, by the wonderful musical score by Pino DiNaggio, who is a great example. It's like you want you want that certain sound. You bring in mm-hmm. an Italian film composer, and like the scene you were discussing earlier, the part where she's on set and like slowly like looking at the camera right. and just going. The, the sort of mindscape piece the motif, the, the little riff that he uses whenever she's kind of drifting away is this sort of like vertiginous, like creepy kind of we're all trapped in it with her circular sounding piece of music that I always love. It's like it's so disturbing and dreamlike.
0: Mm. But I have proof and tonight I'm going to sh- show you something.
1: If you believe and there is an element to the whole movie including like the fog laying all over the the forest that almost gives you this feel like the whole movie feels like a dream like is any of this real you know are there really werewolves living in a in a commune in the forest there's a, a quality of the whole thing that Dante gets with directing, that the music enhances, that the look of it. And then also, I was joking before, but I'm serious, the werewolf's one of my favorite werewolf designs of any werewolf movie of like the post-universal era. I mean, I'll always have a special place in my heart for the wolfman, but he's a guy with a hairy face. It's a different approach. This is a the creature. The classic
0: wolfman is sort of like the dog you'd see in, at, like, the Westminster Kennel Club show. He's very well-groomed. He has a pedigree, soft fur.
1: And like we just talked about, I like the fact that Werewolf by Night went back to a classical thing of it's a man, it's a humanoid, who's become, you know, this wolf-man.
0: But, like, this is a creature.
1: This is a creature, and it looks straight up like this is probably the wolf from the actual Red Riding Hood story. This Mm -hmm. is the giant wolf with the ears and... It's like if it stays on camera too long, it might be a little silly. And granted, we talked about the fact that, yes, there are a couple fleeting shots in this when they thought they were going to do other things stylistically, including one quick stop motion animation and one quick 2D animation shot that are not that good. Mm -hmm. But the creature itself, especially in the whole scene with Terry, Belinda Belasky's character, when she's killed in that room. That thing is so frightening. And I think that's the thing that's one of the, the ones that got me as a kid is it felt like there's no place in the room to get away from it. It's too right. big. And it's and even just its introduction, when it just reaches down and like picks up the file, instantly tells you not only is this a vicious, murderous creature, but it's clearly also intelligent. It, it has the ability to deal with nuance and pick something up gingerly, but it will also then tear your guts out and it's frightening.
0: Also, some people will probably not like this description I'm about to give, but there's also something so creepy about how moist it is. (laughs) Like (laughs) it's as it transforms, you can sort of just see like, it kind of implies something glandular going on that like, all it's, those old bladder
1: effects. Yeah,
0: I mean, and there's something so creepy and like skin crawling about that.
1: There's also the fact that if we're going to compare in comparison to American Werewolf, but again.
0: We're both, not trying to compare. No, I mean, both yeah. of
1: these are fantastic. I, I The fact that I have a difficulty revisiting that one doesn't change the fact that that one is still an amazing piece of work in its own right. And if I could revisit it, we'd talk about it. Now, that's why I figure we mentioned it a few times here as probably as much as I want to, you know.
0: It's another exploration of trauma. Right. In but a more traumatic way for you.
1: The definitive transformation scene in that is partly so iconic because Naughton sells it so much with how incredibly painful it seems to be. Mm. He's screaming through the whole thing. His bones are breaking and reshaping. It's like if you're really going through whatever weird supernatural thing is causing that it's transforming on the other side of it though when you watch the howling eddie's transformation he seems to enjoy it they all do and the question for that eddie one is i i question like does he enjoy it because he's clearly someone who's really into like more sick perverted kind of experiences or do they all is it euphoric is it like an incredible experience to transform, because even after he's injured to the point of past death, and that's another thing, this one picks up on the old universal idea that in some ways a werewolf is virtually immortal and can actually regenerate past a normal human death, he still is able to trigger a transformation when his skull is all distorted and everything, and he seems to still be enjoying it and and reveling in it there
0: is a sense of euphoria that they all seem to feel they all seem to genuinely enjoy the experience of being a werewolf and in a sense what the doctor's trying to do with the retreat is have them all enjoy being human as much as they enjoy Mm -hmm. being werewolves like it's not necessarily about like subjugating the werewolf side of them but elevating the human side of them but also, I guess the the faction's idea is that the werewolf side is superior and why wouldn't you want to lean into it and enjoy that and, and revel in it? And I don't know if anybody's wrong in the movie. Like, truly, it's it's an interesting experience because I can see it from every perspective.
1: As a kid I would have definitely told you that well, like well obviously the werewolves are the villains, they're the monsters, but as an adult I look at it and I think you're right. It's like who's to say they don't have a right to be here?
0: Quist I mean, is a villain.
1: I, mean, I will say that. Yeah, Quist like, is a villain. And he's his whole actually, family is probably
0: I uh, mean he's actually a sociopath.
1: Yes. Who is also a werewolf. And it looks like his brother is too.
0: Probably yeah. And the
1: thing is you say like, you know, it's true that Marsha represents A very powerful, like, female leader in this. But being a Quist, there's got to be... Well, I mean, also, she's perfectly willing to, you know, seduce a married man. And, of course, there's two involved in that. He's got to agree, so he did. But... She's probably got issues, too, that we don't know about, because the whole Quist family seems like they're the really strange group in this. Yeah,
0: I mean, that's where you're bringing in that sort of, like, Hills Have Eyes, Texas Chainsaw kind of feel.
1: They're played very much like they're the hillbilly werewolves. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And Eddie seems to have really fallen in love with going into the city and just indulging all of his, you know, tendencies. Yeah. Um,
0: so yeah, I mean, I guess he is a genu- he's a genuine,
1: but then, villain. like you say, that doesn't mean werewolves are correct. It means Eddie Quist is yes, and you could say that about humans too. So it's like the problem here is the howling kind of shows us a clash of two cultures, and arguably, it's not like the werewolves came about as anything less natural than humans. So. Don't they also have a place to be, you know, and that's an interesting way of looking at it. I would never have thought that as a kid, but now it's like, yeah, that's true.
0: I mean, and ultimately the the capper on all of this and like the way they end the film, like before we get to our credit sequence that murders a hamburger. I mean, one of the things to me that's so striking about the sort of final scene of this movie is that it still rings 100% true. Like, the the way it's presented, where essentially, by the end of this, like, she's had to murder her own husband, but not before he turns her into a werewolf. And they've escaped the colony and doesn't know what to do. And one of the TV producers who had been dating the other producer who is now dead like decides he's going to help her sort of basically break this story by showing it to the world. And she transforms on set on camera. And it's just such a powerful scene. Not only that she transforms on camera, but that she's ordered him to shoot and kill her on camera too, that she'll do this as like her last act, but she doesn't want to be this thing. And you sort of get to the point of him shooting her and finally somebody else in the station manages to cut the broadcast and you sort of cut to the scene of people watching it who are just sort of like, "Wow, that's amazing what you can do with special effects these days. And it's like that rings so true yeah. to how people would still today react to just seeing something so extraordinary but real but real and think like oh that was a neat trick and like ultimately it's clear that this was all in vain and it's it's not going to make a difference
1: right and uh i just want to mention you mentioned uh the one who's going to help who is um the name's chris in the movie but it's dennis dugan who every time i see him i just think of one thing if you're if you're of my general age you might remember the often forgotten it's one of the great joys by the way of getting disney plus was knowing i was finally going to be able to see this again it was actually the first movie i watched on disney plus when i got it because for many years it was out of circulation and hard to find And it was uh, Unidentified Flying Oddball, which was a version of Connecticut Yankee, which I think sometimes was retitled a Connecticut spaceman in King Arthur's Court. (laughs) But when I saw it on cable in the 80s, it was Unidentified Flying Oddball. And Dugan played the lead as the guy flying a space shuttle. Remember, we're talking a while back, too, about all the movies in 79 to 81 that were using space shuttles. His thing was a little space shuttle, and I built it out of Lego because it had a thing where it, like, things folded out that created magnets that were like pulling the swords and everything off. And I built that out of Lego. And it was, uh, it was a joy that movie it had Ron Moody as Merlin in it. And a guy from Dr. Who that I knew later in it. And then it disappeared for years and years. And I was so happy Disney plus had (laughs) unidentified flying eyeball. But the other interesting thing is he didn't make much of an acting career. He's sort of a typical nebbishy kind of looking guy. And he's good for, like, sidekick parts. And he was cute in the Disney movie. And mm. But he basically became a director. And you can decide whether you want to now uh, consider him the true villain of The Howling. Because for most of his directing career, he has been a steadfast partner with Adam Sandler, directing most of Adam Sandler's <laughs> films. Once Werewolf Fighter and uh, <laughs> Connecticut Spaceman. And uh, talking about cameos, besides Patrick McNee, this thing's packed. And that was one of Dante's... I was about to say, it's a Joe Dante
0: movie. Yeah, it's going to be packed yeah, with cameos. that was one of his
1: things. Dick Miller's in it. This kind of starts off, I think, his association with Picardo, who the two of them, Dick Miller and Picardo, have become the double actor always in every Dante movie. But then this also has farce J. Ackerman and Kenneth Toby and... Slim Pickens I mentioned and oh yeah and Kevin McCarthy you mentioned the awful producer who doesn't that's Kevin McCarthy from Invasion of the Body Snatchers who also turns up in everything Dante does so it's like it's a great tribute to the past Roger Corman has a little cameo and then in the midst of all this yeah it's a very interesting I think the thing that I'm most fascinated by is like you said is that actually it's a it's a movie that winds up taking the woman's point of view in a very productive ways you know yeah it I mean, doesn't it's, seem like it's through a through a male lens it's really letting... as
0: she's being gaslit throughout the movie we know that's what's we happening know, to yeah, her right. we know that she's not crazy and that she's absolutely 100% right and she should be asking questions and she should be skeptical and making her a reporter is also what makes it sort of more natural to viewers who would otherwise not feel comfortable with that type of character of like, well, it makes sense that she would be asking questions of all of this, because that's what she does for a living is ask questions about things. And there's just something that's so refreshing about that, both in a movie in general, but also in particular in an eighties horror movie to sort of have that perspective. And Ultimately, I still think this is also just a a very melancholy and kind of sad movie in the same way you feel about American Werewolf in London.
1: I think for the most part, the werewolf tropes that seem to be very hard to let go of mm. usually result in, at best, a melancholy story. Yeah. It's like in telling the story, there's rarely a triumphant end to it. It's usually like a price to be paid or, you know, a tragedy.
0: There's a little bit of a triumph for the werewolves, I suppose. In In a way. I was
1: about to say one of the most triumphant werewolf stories I can think of right off the top of my head is the segment in Trick or Treat. I mean, that's one where everybody werewolf-wise is working out just fine. They're all they're all okay.
0: I mean, really, you could see the segment in Trick or Treat as being this was the new colony that Marcia started after hey, she left.
1: That's very good. Is Trick or Treat like a stealth howling sequel? Because mm-hmm. there are a lot of those. As we wrap up, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're not going to watch the sequels um, for the podcast. There
1: are a ton of of Howling movies. Um, I can't even remember now how many sequels there were. There's
0: at least three more, aren't um, there?
1: There are seven sequels to the Howling.
0: Oh my God!
1: Seven movies, and there was a plan from Netflix to do a remake of this that I think is still in play right now, but I think was hit by the pandemic. But there are seven most famous is the immediate sequel that actually stars christopher lee in it who apparently years later apologized to joe dante for being in it not that dante had any involvement with that one specifically right but it also features then like one of the then sort of stars of b and z movie stuff sybil danning and it like goes over to europe and it's got like a tangential connection to the first movie supposedly but it's terrible and then then we go on to things like I think Howling Three the Marsupials, that I remember. So it's a terrible series. Don't I? We're not going to talk about any other Howling movies ever. I don't think. <laughs> if we ever do, then you know the show's over. We've run out of things to talk about. But I'm kind of happy too. This is one of those ones from my childhood that you you found some value in, and it's like an interesting yeah uh, take on it. And it also winds up being even far more of a good pairing than we thought because the other one we picked, Ginger Snaps, is not only very highly regarded, but also basically a woman's story, a girl's story about coming of age and also a story of sisters. Given the fact that you saw The Howling as sort of taking the woman's perspective, these two flow together pretty nicely. I will I will say at the outset, I think Ginger Snaps is like a slightly you talked about moist <laughs> Ginger <laughs> Snaps is a slightly more body horror leaning movie, and we've talked plenty of times on the show about our limits on that. I think Ginger Snaps comes as close to the limit on yeah. some of that. But that's also because for this movie they were very heavily leaning into werewolfism as a metaphor for puberty and getting your period and like the transformation of your body, even if you're a normal human.
0: Even even sexually transmitted diseases. Yeah.
1: So we move on to Ginger Snaps, which comes along in 2000. So almost 20 years later. And it self-spawned a little mini franchise. There were a couple sequels to it. I think I did see the second one once, but I honestly can't remember. And the third one is a weird sort of prequel where they use the same actresses because everybody really loved those actresses. Right. But cast them as sort of ancestors and uh, and did a, a prequel story of like how that family got started. But the first one, you know, it's always going to turn up on lists. I think it definitely should be there. It's a little ickier in places, but I think it has to be to do the story it needs I mean, to tell.
0: Fun fact, being a woman, especially a teenage <laughs> girl, can be pretty icky so at it's, times.
1: It's very on target. It's a I moist
0: mind. existence, my friend. <laughs> yes. Does it hurt?
1: down by your tailbone or is it up higher is it is it tight throughout here maybe does it ache back here might oh my god do you think it's cramps (coughs) give it a
0: rest for two seconds off Pam,
1: we're eating and also mimi rogers in there is their mother so in this one we have ginger and bridget who are sisters Ginger is the older sister, and she's starting to change in all sorts of ways. And Bridget's really, Bridget is really our lead. Yes. Really. It's Ginger Snaps. Catherine Isabella went on to some other things, sort of became a bit of a horror icon for at least a little while, is sort of the iconic image of the film. But it's really Emily Perkins' performance that's the, I think, the emotional core of this i've rarely seen someone who actually looks like they're hiding within their own body but Mm. she has this way of like hunching over and looking like she's trying to become completely invisible that's really effective and she's winding up having to deal with what's happening to her sister and also the potential effects as it spreads yeah and uh it's some amazing stuff in this including a really different take on werewolf transformation and design as well
0: i mean it's definitely very wolf-like yeah but it's it's not wolf like we talked about when we watched um the beast must die that their werewolf was very dog-like it was a very sort of wolf dog sized thing like it's the size of a wolf this is a wolf that is the size of like i don't know like a a horse?
1: Yeah, I mean... Like, like, I mean, it's it's a large creature. It's large and unnatural. It it's not, like, is, just yeah.
0: transforming your, your like body so that it's your size, but you look like a wolf. And it's also not, like, physically transforming into a wolf Yeah. to be this. It's, like, transforming into this hulking beast yeah. of a creature, which I also think every uh, teenage girl understands what that can feel like, too. I mean... And sort of saying it's a, a metaphor for puberty, it's like you don't have to reach that far for the metaphor. Like you look at it and you're like, oh, yeah, that's it. Like her body's changing. She's growing hair. Like, you know, she's having these strange feelings. She like doesn't know what her urges are, if it's like the sexual urge or is it this urge to feed? And are they the same thing? And she's sort of trying... I guess in a similar way, actualize herself. I mean, Ginger's trying to figure out like, who am I and what do I want?
1: Well, in, in terms of like, sometimes maybe it's overused and incorrectly used, but like in terms of the word empowerment Mm -hmm. and like, I know when people were talking about it initially and even years later, everybody always points to this as sort of like an aspect of playing with empowerment. Cause like when she becomes totally comfortable with the idea that, Oh, this is what I'm becoming fine. That's like when she shows up at school with like the sexy outfit and she's fixed herself up and like suddenly she's become the new self. But it's, but also the way the movie does it, of course, is like you're getting this undercurrent of it's dangerous, which she's becoming scary at the same time to her sister and others. Well,
0: also what's interesting and just feels so true to life is that that self that she's presenting is also not real it's it's a false front it's an act because she's also like growing a really creepy tail that she's got a duct tape to her leg and just massive amounts of coarse hair that she's got to shave once or twice a day you know that like a woman presenting as a sort of a sex symbol is when you're presenting in that societal way of like what people expect you to look like If you are the sexy one that takes work, it takes work because ultimately it's cosplay like it's an act. And that's not to say that maybe for some people that's not something they enjoy doing and like enjoy presenting that way. And I certainly wouldn't want to take that from anyone. But I think most people who do want to present that way will agree that it takes work that it's it's not a natural experience
1: do you also think one of the things that comes up in this is that idea that like men don't like it when women know what they want like there's the scene where she's basically attacking the guy yeah and it's again it's dangerous because clearly we know also she's a creature that's also wanting to feed right and kill But it's also like he's completely thrown by the idea that she actually wants to be the lead, you know, be the the powerful person. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And it it kind of like throws off other women Mm -hmm. who then sort of, I guess, feel a certain way about it. And her sister is ultimately, I think, just trying to protect her, but also is struggling because she's losing her. And, you know, they don't have the same connection that they had before. And it's just, it's a really touching story. It's such a a beautifully told story that really is about the experiences of these two sisters. And in a certain way, their mother as well, who like throughout is sort of also a fish out of water, like the kind of person where like you don't understand how she can continue to be just so relentlessly positive in the face of like two goth daughters who enjoy taking fake death photos yeah we didn't a school even mention project. the fact
1: that they really lean into being outcasts like they revel in being outcasts they've
0: moved and, into the unfinished basement in their home so that it looks like they just like live in a cave and
1: we also were talking about like how like fun it is the very cliched but like almost comedy relief relationship of the parents like the father just doesn't want to have anything to do with any of this <laughs> yeah and is clueless and it feels like they were pulled straight out of a sitcom Yes. And dropped into this werewolf movie.
0: <laughs> and ultimately, in the end, their mother wants to be on their side. Yeah. Regardless of like, she's going to help How them weird come- or crazy. Like, she is perfectly willing. Yeah. To blow up their house to
1: cover up a murder. Oh, I think it's one of my favorite things. Is when she's basically telling them she will, she will burn the house down to cover up the murder, and they're like, "What about their father?" And it's like, "Oh, he won't, he won't understand. That's fine. We'll just let him go too." <laughs> and it's like, wow. it's like yeah she's gonna clean the slate and move them somewhere else
0: yeah that like she's also so desperate for that connection with her daughters that she's willing to literally explode her own life in order to like get on their level and to have them consider her as like a confidant or a friend and there's just so much interesting interplay between the female
1: characters so also interesting like the one like positive male figure in this is the drug dealer who winds up being very helpful drug dealer
0: with a heart of gold and a really like in-depth knowledge of medicinal plants of yore
1: yeah and monkshood yeah that's the other thing too is like this this i think we were talking about it more in depth when we were watching it this does create a very different kind of mythology to how the werewolf thing works Mm. and it's a very different mechanism and also like a different way to try to stop it and it's interesting that the way of potentially curing it is a, a very overt drug metaphor for like you know distilling this drug and putting it in a needle and trying to trying to cure it that way and it's a very different take but very well done it feels like a complete idea yeah like they're not just like picking and choosing from different bits and pieces
0: I mean, and as you would expect in a film that is a metaphor for puberty, there is a lot of blood yes. in this movie. Just, I mean, buckets and buckets and buckets of blood in this film. And none of it feels out of place. It's like, it feels like it should be there. And like, it should be just this viscerally gory and bloody and it it just works like there are some movies where i watch it and i'm like i think they're amping it up a bit much and mm-hmm. like they're going a little over the top or it's the gore here is a bit excessive if you've listened to the podcast long enough you know how much i love the scream series the ones that count for me one through four yes
1: five real ones
0: five doesn't exist to me there's this moment in scream four where one of the characters is killed in a bedroom. Oh. And like literally within, I don't know, 20 seconds, 30 seconds of her first being attacked, another character walks in and it's like you emptied an entire, like several humans worth of blood (laughs) into the room. Right. And I'm always saying like, this doesn't make any sense. no, You know, it's, it's too much. That's a lot. They went too far.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. This feels appropriate and it it feels like it supports the story Mm -hmm. and i think that's really essential
1: so i mean as it seems to have worked out the idea that we often go with is to pair things that fit for one reason or another but actually i'm very happy that it, it seems like these two fit together much much more than i would have thought i just Having not revisited The Howling in a long time, I did not remember it, and certainly as a little boy watching it in the 80s, I didn't have the perspective of even thinking, oh, mm-hmm. this is an interesting woman's perspective on it, so it didn't occur to me, and it's interesting to now see it as as being, I guess you could say, particularly enlightened for the early 80s. I think a lot of that's to the credit of D. Wallace, who appears to have taken a lot of control over her experience in making the movie and wanting it to be a certain way it sounds like she was very demanding about what needed to be done to have like a safe structure for the film and to do the stuff she did it so. very
0: much sounds like she was a real pioneer of having women dictate control yeah of the sexualization of characters in a film and to have control over the safety of sexual situations
1: i'll share one behind the scenes story Thing that i discovered don't mm-hmm. really bother with that so much but it's a good example of it is that one of the things that came up in that oral history was in the scene at the end where basically they're all dragged to like the big barn and elizabeth brooks's Marsha's there and they're all there dante apparently had some topless women like placed around in the background like because it was like oh this is a pagan sort of thing going on we want like a little set dressing and some nudity and apparently when Dee Wallace saw it, she was like, what is this? This is not what we talked about. This is totally unnecessary. And she basically put her foot down and they took the girls out of the shot and didn't do it. Because they realized she was right and that this hadn't been agreed upon initially. Mm-hmm. And Which is another thing, too, is like there's certain things where it's like, we're going to agree to these parameters before we do anything. And this was not agreed upon. And it sounds like she was very adamant about making sure that if you're going to do something, you do it the way you say you're going to do it and don't overstep your boundaries. And so she she appeared to have quite a bit of control yeah. over that. And then flash forward to 2000, you get this movie Ginger Snaps, which still, I guess in a way, I don't know if anybody out there knows any other examples of something that's happened in the 20 years since because it seems like a long time to wait for another one, but people are still pointing back to Ginger Snaps as a great example of... A female-led, not only werewolf movie, but horror movie that has a lot to say about that experience and is still considered one of the best examples of it. But surely there must be some others, you would hope, in the last 20 years. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's definitely something I think would be interesting to look into a bit more. But ultimately, I think that the Howling and Ginger Snaps make an extraordinary double feature, albeit one that is very melancholy and you know, could, could give you all the feels basically just crammed in, but they pair together so well. And I, I wouldn't have thought it when you told me 1981 werewolf movie. And I'm like, mm, we'll see how it goes. But it, it really exceeded my expectations.
1: Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House featuring Natalie Bilatowski and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Post.News at NBLitovsky, that's NB Lit of Sky, and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were The Howling, 1981, and Ginger Snaps, 2000.
0: Well, you're a big help,
1: as usual. Ghouls in the House is an ATV Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. Well, I'll give him another 20 minutes, but that's it.